everybody. Welcome to A French Village Podcast. I'm here with my brilliant friend, Ben Wittes. We are talking about The French Village, episodes 9 and 10, season 4. We're coming to the end of season 4. We are. It's exciting. It is exciting. And this is... Uh, we got some exciting stuff going on in in these couple episodes. We got a parade, a nationalist demonstration. Uh, we've got songs about Alsace and Lorraine. We've got uh, uh, savage beatings of Larche brothers. I mean, you know, it's it's an action packed few episode, a couple episodes. And we're not even at the season finale two episodes, which are going to be coming next week. So, um, yeah, but tons and tons to discuss. I do want to ask you up front and put you on the spot. I meant to ask you this before we hit record, but Uh I didn't. So here we are. What do you know about the origin story of the song Les Marseilles? Les Marseilles? Les Marseilles. Yeah, I mean, there I go. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) so um, uh, the answer is... uh, 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 it dates from, I believe, from the period of the French Revolution. Uh, uh, it is uh, um, about, um, uh, I, I want to say it, it, it involves the uh, wars or it dates from the period of the wars of the early 1790s which kind of embroiled France, uh, revolutionary France, against the uh, monarchies of of Europe, particularly the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, And uh, beyond that, oh, and it is, of course, the, the national anthem, although I don't know that it was at the time of the Third Republic. Um, it... Uh, plays a prominent role in uh, various, uh, you know, nationalist exhibitions. Um, uh, I believe, of course, it it shows up in famously in in Casablanca, right, where uh, you know the uh, they have a, a a showdown in Rick's bar, singing La Marseillaise against. Uh, uh, against a German nationalist song, but it is you know it's the it's the famed song of the revolution that became of course the the uh, uh, anthem of the country, and so uh, you know uh, it's a it's a uh, it's it's quite old and it has long played the role, including in showdowns with Germans of. Although I believe it is actually about Austrians, but you know um, Hitler was, after all, at the end of the day, an Austrian. Um, it it it's about you know France versus the the authoritarian monarchies of Europe, and and so it it makes a certain amount of sense that it would show up here. Well, let me just read you the lyrics because I was struck because uh, they're doing yeah, they're pretty sort of, bloody. Yeah, so this is the this is the English translation of the lyrics. Arise, children of the fatherland, our day of glory has arrived. Against the bloody flag of tyranny is raised, the bloody flag is raised. It's a little redundant. Did you hear in the countryside the war of those ferocious soldiers? They're coming right into your arms to cut the throats of your sons, your comrades. To arms, citizens, form your battalions. Let's march, let's march, that their impure blood should water our fields. 
not quite. I mean, I don't know. I guess the. I guess it, I. I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to say that the American national anthem is better exactly, but you know, for rock, rockets, red glare, bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. I just feel also, like also a war song. By also the way. a war song. No, no, no. I, I was. I'm. I'm. I'm mindful of the the fact that they are. Um, that it that it's similar. The the thing is, I just um, theirs is intense. There's intense. <laughs> it, is, it is an intense war song. It is directed again. I'm I I I believe it arose out of the 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 war with Austria Hungary, but I'm not sure about that. But it certainly arose in you know in the context of revolutionary France taking on the uh, in a in a series of very bloody conflicts the monarchies of Europe, which it regarded as authoritarian which were, of course, authoritarian. Of course, revolutionary France was awfully authoritarian, too, as it turned out. But it stood for uh, the rights of man and all that jazz. Um, one well, other important note on La Marseillaise as a, you know, a sort of nationalist anthem, um, not just a national anthem, but a bloody nationalist anthem, uh, I've talked before on this show about uh, Grand Illusion, the, the great Renoir film uh, that dates from 1937, so right around uh, this period. Uh, so the famous uh, scene in Casablanca where there's a... Uh, um, uh, um, where... French uh, people burst out singing La Marseillaise as a show of resistance against Germany actually dates, uh, actually is ripped off from Grand Illusion, where the French prisoners of war spontaneously burst into uh, uh, La Marseillaise as a show of resistance to uh, their German uh, captors. And uh, so the, the idea in that this you know, that if you parade around singing La Marseillaise, uh, that is a show of resistance to Germans, uh, actually has a lot of resonance in the art of the period and no doubt in the reality of the period. So what it reminds me of uh, is, it's not Casablanca, but Red Dawn, uh, <laughs> that other great movie, uh, you know, about a real war that happened uh, where, um, you know, America was invaded by uh, the Russians uh, and the Spanish, as I recall. Uh, but there's a, a great ep there's a great scene uh, where they start to they're about to be executed and they all start singing "America the Beautiful." Um, anyway, I'm just joking. It's not like your grand illusion metaphor at all. Uh, but here's the thing Actually, about Actually, it is. Well, that's right. Well, this <laughs> is well. I guess it is. So the reason it reminds me of it, right, is the way that singing can be this act of resistance. Um, and I and I guess the the whole point. Um, we're sort of, we're going to, you know, just do the meat of the episode up front here, but what is, the play was a dumb idea. And when I, when, when, when Antoine says, we're going to, to march instead, there's a part of me when I remember seeing it the first time, and even this time again, kind of being like, all right, you're like a child whose feelings have been hurt. And so you decide you're going to have a parade and like, it doesn't necessarily sound that much more of an act of resistance, I guess, than the like putting flowers on the grave or the play or the party or anything else, right? It's just a 
guys are going to march through the streets. But then when it happens, when they show it to you, and they do their best to march in formation through the streets, and people think, like, it's the liberation. Uh, and, and when they get to the square and they, the band plays and they sing uh, the Le Marseille and, and you see, like, the older women crying, it's like one of, again, like I said, I don't get emotional in the show that many times. Like, I can count them on one hand, I think. Um, but this is one of them where, like, it is actually incredibly powerful. And what's interesting to me about the song is that, like, it seems like a weird national anthem to sing at a baseball game. But it actually seems it's like good. quite a good national anthem to right. sing in that particular moment. Yep. Like, it resonates in that moment in a way that is, like, a perfect reverberation through history in a way that I would just say, like, at the Olympics, it's not so much. Yeah, so... uh uh, it's funny you mention that because, you know, there has been controversy over the last couple decades about La Marseillaise as a as an ongoing national anthem of France because it's so bloody. Um, that said, you understand when you see uh, this, why it means so much to so many people. And also, uh, look, I just want to say, as a lover of music, it is a wonderful song. And it is actually, you know, just as a piece of music, it is one of the great national anthems in the world. Uh, it's stirring. Think about how many European national anthems you can actually hum to yourself and that you know. Um, and the answer is really few, um, if you're like most people. But you know La Marseillaise. And uh, and that's not because of the French Revolution. It's because of the uh, uh, incredible role that song has played in the sort of fighting French uh, spirit of resistance to authoritarianism over a very long period of time. Though, of course, uh, like American uh uh, values. It is uh, one that is sometimes honored in the breach or often honored in the breach historically. Um, but, you know, if you were a French villager in 1943 and you were going to do a march of, to show resistance, uh, it's great to have a song like La Marseillaise that, you know, to, to blow your flugelhorn to. <laughs> uh, well, I see that you have uh, named yourself Claude today, which we don't always talk about this, but you come in every day named as a character. I tend to give whatever the automatic generated, uh, you know, squad cast name is, which is today guest FCHJ. Just, just to be clear <laughs> to the audience, uh, we do this uh, recording on a system uh, called Squadcast, which uh, allows us to see one another and get high quality audio. And it allows you to change your, you know, the name that appears on like Zoom that allows you to choose what the name is going to be. And I always choose a character from uh, figuring that Sarah Longwell actually knows who I am and doesn't need like it to be labeled Ben Wittes. I always try to choose a character from the show who did something either particularly uh, interesting or noble or particularly stupid, as Claude did this time. Uh, and Claude is one of my least favorite characters on the show. 
Uh, and uh, so I'm, I've been particularly annoyed with Claude these two episodes and so chose him as my screen name. Well, since we're in the scene of the singing, I think I could probably, I, whenever I like, I, I guess I'm the only one who gets to see who you chose, but I always know why you chose them. Um, but so, but why don't you explain why you're mad at Claude today? So I'm almost always mad at Claude. I think he's a, an annoying dolt. And, uh, uh, you know, the broy parts of camping out in the forest are most brought out by Claude. And this is one of my least favorite aspects of the show is, is this, you know, the, the sort of winter's tale quality of, uh, of, of these forest scenes. But the thing I hate the most in, about the forest camp stuff is this play and um, they, the endless repetitions of them rehearsing the exact same sequence of dialogue with the kiss. I just hate it. And Claude is the one who imposed this play on all of us uh, and then advocates for it and gets all sulky when the play gets replaced with a much better idea, which is have a march, you know, clear the town of German soldiers through this a very complicated uh, set of operations and then march through the town singing about Alsace and Lorraine and then plant a wreath uh, with uh, guns uh, under arms, the, the resistance under arms and sing La Marseillaise. This is a good plan by Antoine. And by the way, we're going to have to talk about Marie's uh, terrible judgment in not supporting the plan. Um, but um, this is a good plan. He thinks through all the elements, and all Claude can think about is that his play is not happening. So I'm really annoyed at Claude about that. And then it gets worse because Claude almost gets them all killed. Because having opposed this idea because he didn't get to do his stupid play, he then, once we're in the central square, he refuses to leave and he has a big party and he's got like people dancing and uh, when they know the Germans are there, he stalls leaving. Uh, and uh, Antoine basically has to trick them by shouting that the Germans are there into evacuating the square. And so he almost, you know, he, he, he basically has the wrong instinct at every step of this thing. He's, uh, he's, too, he's so arrogant that about his his play that he doesn't want to do it in the first place. He's kind of sulky about it, but then he gets so into it that he doesn't know when to stop. And so I, I actually think, you know, this set of episodes makes him look uh, pretty bad. And I'm, you know, if I were going to share a foxhole with somebody over, you know, it wouldn't be uh, Claude. So I, I share your your Claude sentiments, and uh, it's a really good couple of episodes for Antoine in terms of, um, you know, and, and and you're right about Marie, and I think this is one of those elements where, look, Marie is, Marie is tough, and she is, she's, she was willing to take risks, um, but in some ways it is Antoine's sort of romantic, young, headstrong, cocksure uh, thing that kind of gets him in trouble sometimes that is the right thing in this moment because you sort of need um, need somebody who's willing to take this bigger risk. And Marie, you know, has been in sort of the resistance almost too long where now she's 
you know, she, she doesn't quite see that, like, this is the moment to step out. She is worried about, you know, the blowback, which I think is probably assured. Um, but, you know, the and and so there's this part early on where I could I could sort of be on her side because I always think about the blowback and worry about what's going to happen to regular people as a result of this. But when you see the march and you see what it does to people, the idea like how um, how much it inspires them, how much it gives them hope. And also the thing about the scene that um, they don't dwell on it or even tell you that much about, but what's clear, like these are the boys from this town. Right. So when they march through, everybody knows who they are and like their parents see them, their parents who haven't seen them in forever. So the thing that's happening that Claude is doing is like Claude is a silly person. Like and he was silly from the start. Like remember back when he was hiding out with Antoine and he or, and, and he lies to Antoine to get him to come with him. Uh, he's always been sort of selfish. And it's funny because he's always accusing Antoine of being selfish. Like that's sort of his main thing uh, is that Antoine does these all, this all for himself. When, of course, uh Antoine is sort of selfish, but he's also turned the correct way. He's also like he's advancing in the correct direction, whereas Claude is also selfish. Uh, and I would say this is not atypical for like 21-year-old boys. Uh, he's also selfish, but he's like turned in a stupid direction all the time. Um, and like the big drama in his life is having to break it to poor Terry that, you know, he really isn't going to get to be in the play this time, but he's still a great actor. And you're like, your guys' stakes are not high enough. Your stakes are not high enough. And Antoine understands it. And you realize that as they do it, that Antoine's plan involves real stakes and it's a real moment um, and and uh, and ultimately is incredibly inspiring for the viewers and the people of the town. Yes, uh, I agree with that. And I also think that, um, you know, the inscription on the wreath that they yes. lay is... Uh, is important to the psychology of the moment, um, which is uh, from the victors of tomorrow to the uh, victors of 1914 or 1914 to 1918. Um, and, you know, they, there is a question on that square whether this is the liberation but there is no longer much question in their minds that there is going to be a liberation, right? And uh, they are, um, you know, energetic enough, energized enough uh, that to uh, beat very badly Shasani, um, they are, uh, you know, they're, and they're not really afraid of him in that moment, which is an interesting change. Um, they are, you know, the, the cops who, the, the resistance who take over the police station, who are led by a former cop, uh, Lorio. No, uh, Verne, Verne. Verne is... Sorry. Yeah, Lariat is a different guy, but yeah, Verne. Verne. Um, you know, when they are talking to the current cops... They are uh, insolent and contemptuous. Uh, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, uh, and they're, uh, you know, th th I think that's a, um, uh, there's a real sign in this. This is the first operation where that the whole premise of it is, uh, 
you're living on marked time, guys. Uh, we're we're the future. It's it's basically you know in a completely different moral context. It's what the Taliban is doing all over Afghanistan now. Yeah, um, and and there is this. Uh, it's it's satisfying to some degree, right? Everywhere they go into, whether it's Shasanja's house and he's hiding in the closet, whether it's when they march into the police station. Um, whether it's the look on Mueller's face, like the the awareness that comes with each of these things from the people that the tide is really turning. And like part of it is like, I think that the show does a good job of you seeing on their faces the inevitability, like, oh, this is the moment this is happening now. Um, and they are both panicked, uh, but at least in Mueller's case, and even I think in the cop's case, it's like, Okay, this is how this starts. Whereas, except for Chasani has always been the one where you're, you know, he's like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Terrorists. Uh, and he doesn't, you know, ever quite realize. I mean, he's practicing some speech in which he talks about purifying, you know, France of the Jews or whatever. And you're like, he, he's just so, he's lost his authoritarianism and doesn't see things are changing. Yeah. So Mueller's reaction strikes me as very interesting. He, uh, and it gives rise to one of the most powerful moments in in the thing. Uh, he puts on civilian clothes. He borrows Larcher's clothes, um, puts them on to go watch because, as he says to Hortense, he wants to see history. And so this is his kind of weird fatalism. He is not like Shasanya. He's not deluding himself that, you know, his side is going to prevail. Um, he's kind of fatalistic about the whole thing. And it gives rise to this really interesting confrontation between him and Gustave, uh, who, uh, uh, with whom he's developing a pretty interesting relationship. Um, uh, he has, of course, Gustav's father uh, in in a, a dark cell, and he will not tell Gustav that he's not going to kill him because Muller is many things, but he's actually not a liar. Um, and uh, rather, he tells Gustav that he respects his father and give him gives him a pretty coherent explanation of the nature of that respect. Um, Gustav responds to this by deciding to kill him, steals his gun, uh, but then can't quite actually do it. Um, and Mueller kind of calls him on it. You've kind of, you're, you're not actually going to pull the trigger. You've missed your chance on this one. But also has his father, his uncle, uh, the other Larche, and we should go back to, to this because the Larche brothers are reunited in this cell in a very interesting scene. He has Danielle Larche released, seems like as a favor to Hortense, it's totally unclear. And so at the square where he's dressed in civilian clothes, it's not clear that he's a German officer, let, let alone an, you know, an SD guy, an intelligence guy. And Gustav stands there and their eyes meet 
And Gustav could have him killed right at that moment, just as easily as when he had a gun pointed at him. All he had to do was point at him and shout, you know, SS guy over there, um, you know, that's Muller, get him. And he would have been beaten to death. Um, but Gustav actually can't do it. And the interesting question that, again, if this were an American show, you'd have a very uh, clear explanation as to why, and you don't hear, uh, is it because he's sleeping with his aunt? Is it because he just saved uh, his uncle from uh, the, and had him released? Is it because he respects his father as an enemy, though he's going to kill him? Is it because he's hoping if he doesn't kill him, maybe he won't kill his father? It's completely opaque to me what Gustav's motivations in those two moments are. Yeah, and I, I so when I see this, first of all, I remember this, this is a, one of those scenes that's kind of burned on. I remember this, and I remember the first time thinking like, that he would do it. Like he was about to yell. Like I was just, I wasn't, I'm not convinced when he had the gun pulled on him, but like in this moment, I was like, oh, he's going to shout. And like the next part of this is that them they attack Mueller. And that's not what happens. And I think it's because all of the things that you just listed, uh, coupled with the fact that he's 12 and like, he just doesn't have, he can't sort through it all to make the kind of decision that that takes. Like that takes maybe three more years to have the sense of, you know, like the Although sense of Although I don't think of middle school as the period of my life or anybody's life where you're most, you know, constrained by, uh, like, worry about consequences when you denounce somebody. Yeah, maybe. I just, I don't know, 12 still feels kind of young for him to, like, make sense of it all. So, like, this, there's this, like, funny, not funny, but there's, like, a little scene where Hortense is, in her just another example of how she's terrible in small ways and large, uh, you know, yelling at him for wetting the bed um, in this way that's like humiliating and not totally unnecessary. And, you know, Mueller like defends him uh, by just saying like, yeah, it's hard when you're asleep. Um, and so there's this weird and, and that dinner table scene where they have that conversation that you're referencing. Uh, it does create like a weird bond between them. It uh, doesn't have to be like a good one, but it's just something is connecting. There's a thread now that makes it like slightly harder for him. Um, so anyway, that is a great scene. You're right, though. Uh, we have like a lot to get through. And there's one other element to the parade that I that I want to hit, which is that this is this is Lucienne's big, big moment. This is when Lucienne does her bit in a real way. Uh, for the resistance. And, and gets rewarded with a, a lesbian kiss scene. I mean, Lucien's had a, like, you know, it was only last episode when she's denouncing uh, Marguerite as an invert. Um, and now she's, like, rewarding herself for her first operation by making out with her. I mean, Lucien's, it's a big week for Lucien. It is a big week. I just want to say, just the again, because I have no expertise in World War II, but just on the lesbian front, I can give some context, which is that it is not at all crazy that your first response may, in fact, even have been mine uh, when when you are confronted with some of this stuff is to be like, that's gross, that's bad, I object to it, only to know that that is an internalized uh, like thing of self-hatred that then 
you know, you kind of come to terms with. And I'm not saying that's like to me, because I don't think Lucien uh, is a lesbian. Uh, Marguerite clearly is. But I, that doesn't mean that Lucien can't be having a moment of, um, you know, she's but she is kind of intoxicated by her in some way, which also well, feels real. What enough. we used to call when I was at Oberlin exploring one's bisexuality. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. And, uh, and she, so like, but the, to me, the kiss is not nearly as interesting about Lucienne as the fact that she is, she goes through this and she does it in her wide eyed. What am I doing? How am I doing this kind of way where she like watches Marguerite seduce the soldier. And she also has weird petty jealousies about the fact that the soldier doesn't really have a crush on Lucienne. The soldier has the crush on Marguerite. Uh, and, uh, but she, so she's just doing this thing, whole thing in her pant way, but then she gets in the room. She steals the keys. Marguerite does a heroic job of making out with this German soldier. And it's actually reminiscent of that other scene where Marcel had to steal the gun in the uh, whorehouse and the, the, the prostitute that was having sex with the guy kind of turns him in such a way that he doesn't see, even though she's only loosely participating. Anyway, Marguerite kind of does the same thing, gets him looking the wrong way, hands off the keys, mid make out, baller move. And then uh, Lucienne has to go by herself. And there's this, through the whole thing, you're like, Lucienne's not up for this. She's not qualified for this level of omission. What are we doing? We can't, this can't hinge on her. Uh, and of course she gets in the room. She takes out the fuse. She takes apart the radio box, uh, takes out the fuse with a little note. She's got a little paper, pull out the black fuse. Uh, and then like, the Germans are all outside banging on the door, trying to figure out, you know, where is this soldier supposed to be? Who's supposed to be in there? And then Lucienne, because she it's only plausible because it's Lucienne, because she lives in the school and she's known the school for a long time, that she remembers that there is a door that like must have taken her into the basement, uh, like a trap door in the floor. And she gets in it and she's out. And uh, it's a miracle. And so, so when she goes back to Marguerite, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I think this kiss is sort of, there's just the idea though. I, I guess the idea that your first kiss, first lesbian kiss gets to be with l the Le Marseilles being sung in the background while you've just, you've just allowed the church bells to ring in this great act of resistance and revolution uh, seems to me to be like a transcendent moment. And I was happy for Lucienne. I think that was, yeah, I agree. It's a, it, it's a, it's a really, first of all, really good sequence of scenes. And it is some seriously uh, good screenwriting, some good acting. You've got amazing tension uh, uh, around the whole, the Marguerite-Lucienne relationship around the Lucienne's capability to pull this off, as you uh, point out, in which she certainly doesn't believe. And one of the th things the show does, I think, really well with Lucienne, she is a small person from the first episode to, well, I wouldn't say the last because we're still in season four and I have not watched ahead. But um, she is a, she will never be not a small person. But she is a small person who is surrounded by people who are bigger than she is. Uh, from, from Marguerite, who is actually something of a badass, as we're learning, to her husband, who I started out really disliking 
and just grows on you and grows on you and grows. Berio is a, is a become a very admirable kind of Marie like character um, to, and she is worked on by circumstances. She goes from, you know, being a sort of reckless human being who helps get these kids killed at the beginning of the show and who has a very stupid affair with a German soldier who she shouldn't be fraternizing with uh, and who can't quite handle um, uh, being, like, doesn't know how to respond to her boss being fired because she's Jewish. You know, just she's just, a like, a small petty uh, person who is forced into these situations where she has to be, has sort of big person things to do and uh, sometimes actually manages it. Um, The first one is when she's actually confronted by by, uh, Janine, then Schwartz, now Shasanya, um, uh, but I like the way the show that it doesn't actually show a lot of growth in her. It shows her as somebody who is small, remains small, and yet has big girl things to do. Um, and I, I think this is a really good, uh, it's a really good scene where, you know, there's no part of her responds to this the way Marguerite does, which is, hey, this is just something we have to do and we're going to take risks to do it and it's going to be scary and we're going to do it anyway. Um, You know, she's not a gamer that way. She just kind of gets backed into it and then pulls it off. Um, So I I think, you know, two cheers for Lucien this week. Yeah, and look, I believe... And I'm glad she got a good kiss with the Marseillaise playing in the background and... And, you know, that, yeah. she won't forget that. She she deserved that moment uh, because she did a thing. And here's just the one thing about this that I, I sort of love that the show does is you hear the two women talking and Marie, um, Lucianne kind of says like, oh, that soldier has a crush on me. Like I can I can distract him. And when they go to see the soldier, it becomes very clear his crush is on Marguerite. And that, you know, Lucienne, because she is small, takes it as like a petty jealousy over the fact that the soldier, who she has no interest in, you know, likes Marguerite. Um, But in that moment, what becomes clear is that the role that Lucienne was supposed to play, which is the seducer, one that she would have been more comfortable with, is now switched where Marguerite has to be the seducer and Lucienne has to be the doer, the person who goes and gets the radio, which is like, it's just a, in that little moment, the whole, the role switch of what they have to do. And Lucienne's response to that, which I love, is not to say, I'm not up to this, Marguerite. It's to ask Marguerite, can you get it on with a guy? Yeah. And Marguerite's <laughs> response is, I can get it on with a lizard. Yeah, um, you know, like, um, yeah Rick Santorum which, would take that out of context and use it against you. But uh, but that's what she means is like, yeah, I can get this job done. I can I get care. this job done. Yeah. I, I, you know, if I need to flirt with a man, I can flirt with a man. If I need to, if it need to take it to an, another level to get the job done, I can get the job done. Um, and I think, you know, some part of Lucienne's like, well, if she can get it on with a lizard, 
maybe I can, uh, you know, break in and get the radio disabled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would that sounds about right in Lucianne's brain. Um, I mean, that's the way she's uh, thinking about it. Like she's like, wow, she's inverted, but she can she can fake it with a man. What? what like so? Like she's clearly thinking this through for the first time. And I'll tell you, this is why in the beginning, when everybody's so mad at Lucian, I have been a bit defensive of her because she comes through in some key moments. Uh, and also, like, I don't think she's a bad actress. Like, I actually, I loved watching her in these episodes because I think she does that, that, like, panicked, like, <laughs> why am I in this situation? That look on her face, like, I don't know, it just feels so real that, like, about how she, how she is, how she would respond. And I, it, she provides, that is one of the most, like, exciting, tense moments that the show really offers up, and I loved it uh, and loved her for it. So, um, okay, but we do need to talk about the Brothers Larche. Yes, we do. But before we do, I just want to pause a moment to, while we're talking about performances in this show, to to just mention what an awesome performance uh uh, is delivered by the guy who plays Muller. Um, you know, he is menacing. He is completely evil. He's, but he's complicated. He's got, there's a million things going on with him. He's capable of being surprising. The performance is multilingual. Um, the character is, is refined in, you know, is in French, but capable of, uh, but, but also, you know, doing uh, native German. Um, it's a really remarkable performance. And I, I um, have never seen this actor before in anything, but I, boy, is he great. So I agree, and I hesitated. I, I was going to talk about this uh, back when when he goes away after season two or something, and then he comes back, you know, at some point in season three, like, he comes back. But, like, you're not supposed to want Muller to come back because he's a really bad guy. But I was, like, so happy to see him uh, because when he is on the screen, you are – it's just, like, a joy to watch. Like it's an, you, electri- it's an electrifying performance, and – I was trying to think what are the comparable performances that I've ever seen of an SS officer who is pure evil and yet interesting. And I can't identify one. Um, I think it's, it's, it's just one of the great performances of the show, along with Marie and, and Larche, um, both Larches actually, but it's a more complicated performance than any of them. And, and it's got a million things going on. So while we were giving a hat tip to, to Lucienne, I, I do think it's time to give the Nazi his due. He is the one, I will tell you one of my uh, early depictions of an SS guy that I, uh, or, or I guess I'm not positive at SS, but Kenneth Branagh, plays uh, a, a leader of the Gestapo in a movie called Swing Kids. I've never um, seen that. So it's an early Christian Bale uh, movie about um, the like kids who listen to jazz and swing music in Germany in the run-up to the war. Um, and as which, was, the war- which was really like not quite illegal, but really deeply frowned upon because it was black music. 
that's black and Jewish music. Yeah. yeah. And so they talk about, you know, Django Reinhardt and, um, and, and it was one of these movies that came out, I might even be from, I don't know if it's from Disney, but like, it's from something that I would have seen in my pretty formative years that I've watched approximately 15 times. I will um, watch Kenneth Branagh in just about anything. And, uh, yeah. So, so the, in the mood, just really quickly, a quick sidebar, uh, in this movie, which everybody should go watch immediately. I can't remember the name of the actor right now. Sean, his name is Sean something. And you recognize him immediately. Um, he was kind of big back then. This would have been like late nineties or mid nineties. Uh, and his mother is played by Barbara Hershey. Um, and Kenneth Branagh's, uh, Gestapo character takes an interest in his mother and, um, and, and he's like, you know, he's got to be like 17 or 18. So they're putting him and his friends who love this swing music into the, whatever the training was that they put the young men into where they make them, you know, cut their hair and they're not allowed to smoke anymore. And they're not allowed to listen to this swing music. And they're basically conscripted into this. And it's like this actual movie about friendship where Christian Bale is the friend. And as they are going through um this training like his the christian bale character like becomes nazified and it's then you've got this other guy who's like committed to pluralism through this music um a lot of which is american music and like is fighting against um sort of the nazification of Germany. anyway it's 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 an excellent movie i'm surprised i, I haven't brought it up before i will check that out the answer to your question is that the gestapo was administratively uh, under the SS, um, but had, I mean, it was effectively the secret police organization, whereas the SS was kind of, was its uh, its father organization. So part of, but sort of uh, a a separate administrative function, a, a separate function, but under the umbrella of the SS. Okay. Well, I just I just throw that out there that Kenneth Branagh has an interesting turn worth watching. Anyway, okay, let's get to the boys in the cell, uh, the brothers Larche, because uh, the 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 first episode of the two that we watched kind of starts out with Daniel being thrown into the cell where Marcel is bloodied and uh, freshly tortured, um, and uh, it's it's good to see them together <laughs> question mark i guess i mean it is like the idea that if you get thrown into a cell you get to be there with your brother um and if you've been sitting in a cell for a long time and your brother becomes the companion that sort of gets tossed in there that like they get to have this this uh, this moment of marcel helping daniel to like be brave um because one of the things daniel keeps saying is like I know where they are. I know where the resistance guys are. I'm going to talk. Um, like, how can I not talk? And something about Marcel's, you know, commitment and just, and just loving his brother. And even though they fight during the conversation um, and like condemn each other in certain ways, uh, Marcel does help Daniel to, to stick it out. Yeah. It's a very moving set of scenes. And I want to, I mean, I have a few things to say about it, including my one gripe with it. Um, but uh, so first of all, um, it represents an important, I think, an important turning point for Danielle, um, which is, remember, he knows where the guys in the woods are because they kidnapped him and he was not one of them. 
and he is not for what they were doing. He was their prisoner, and yet he wants very badly not to give them up. And I think there's an important psychological change going on here where, you know, he is starts the show as a Pitanist official with a, you know, kind of a good heart. Uh, and he is now, uh, you know, at the beginning of this season, he is not part, very much not part of the resistance, though not a Petanist official anymore. He's sort of a moderate Petanist, not former official, right? But, you know, he now knows where they are and is not giving them up. And I think that's an important psychological uh, development for him, uh, related to which he is now looking up to his brother, um, and there's this quite moving exchange where he tells his brother who about this line that his hated father um, had about him, that he was a pain in the ass and he was stupid and he was reckless, but he had a lot of courage. Um, and Danielle is realizing that that is a commodity he has undervalued in life. Um, uh, so that's the moving part of the scene. There is one thing about this scene that I really dislike, which is the revisionism of the baby stealing. And Lars, you know, Marcel confronts, reasonably confronts Danielle with, you know, I talked to the father of Takero, and by the way, he was shot yesterday, and, um, and I, you know, I know what you did. And Danielle does not respond with the truth, which is, I didn't do it. I didn't know about it when it was happening. I helped Hortense steal a baby from the nuns. And she then had an affair with my house guest and conspired to, uh, I didn't know the father existed or had shown up. And she conspired to have him deported to a concentration camp with a cop, and I found out about it later and was was outraged. That's hold on, just one second. This is not quite right. The is father, it not? So the father shows up at the door and says, like, shows up looking for the baby, and Daniel turns him away and tells Hortense about it. But then Daniel wants to go tell the truth, and Hortense, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, but now I'm like, as I'm getting into the details, I can't remember super specifically, but. I just I don't think that Daniel is quite as blameless as you think he is. Like I think he he kind of he doesn't know the thing that Hortense and Marchetti do, but eventually he does find out about it. Yeah, but uh, okay. So I need to go back. I'm going to report back next week about what Danielle did and didn't do. But I'm going to go back and watch that episode. Um, but I think he's taking on like more blame than he deserves for for this guy's fate here. Yeah. But maybe I'm misremembering it. 
I think that Daniel, Daniel was not morally culpable in the way that Hortense is, but I don't think he's blameless either. Like I, I think this is part of the thing with Daniel when you do a look back, uh, is that there are a lot of things that Hortense does that are terrible that he ultimately kind of goes along with and or like, like I, like I can't even remember what the example was from like a few weeks back where you're like, this is disqualifying, Daniel. Get this woman out of there forever. Like, yeah. these are disqualifying. And, and now it's he's like, got the Nazi living at his house too. Yeah, you I know. know. Like, and, he's and got he's, the SS guy <laughs> and he's got the Jewish maid, you know, who he's having. Like, he's he's really, a, um, he's got a lot of stuff. Potentially overly tolerant, yeah. Mr. 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 Daniel Larche. And it because he is a humanist and because he does in every situation see like the good or the moral, whatever. Um, but but uh this this so I, anyway, I'm just saying I don't I don't I don't know that uh he doesn't feel a certain sense of guilt. And one of the things he says to Marcel, uh, and it's a little bit heartbreaking is he's like, well, I'm going to find him after the war and I'm going to, you know, tell him the truth. Uh, and Marcel's like, well, he got shot yesterday. Um, and it is, it is, there's sort of something heartwarming about the way that the brothers continue to fight. Like they have a fight about Gustav. Like they're still, they're condemning each other as they do in just about every conversation. Um, in what, you know, for all they know, could be the very last time they see each other. They're still like fighting. They just can't help it. And yet... They do transfer elements of their best selves to one another um, over at different points of the show. And this is one where Marcel, who has the mental and moral uh, and ideological fortitude to like stick these things out, helps Daniel. Like when Daniel comes back the second time after being beaten, he's vomiting. He says, I didn't talk. And you know, had he not been in the cell with Marcel and had that that inspiration of him and wanting to be like him or or valuing the courage, you don't you you'd suspect he would not have gotten through it the same way. Um, go ahead. Agreed. Yeah. Um, so I think okay. there's there's one more item that we got to talk about, which is uh, Janine. We've got a bunch, honestly, but really? yes, let's do Janine. Oh, I've got. Well, we've got. Uh, we've got. Elian uh, getting shot oh, yeah. by Antoine uh, and and you know some Marquette right, stuff. Let's, but... let's do a lightning round. Okay, great. Uh, well, so uh, I so Elian. The first episode is like called the birth certificate or called something like that because she she goes back to the sawmill to get her birth certificate because she still wants to marry Marquette, um, and she's on the phone with him. She calls him from the sawmill calls Marchetti and it's when Anton and Schwartz show up, uh, which is another side thing to discuss, which is that there's a whole romantic Marie, uh, Schwartz, Antoine, like love triangle problem. Uh, and so they show, show up and, uh, they hear her on the phone and it becomes clear. She's talking to Marchetti and she's ratting them out. And it also, then it, Antoine realizes that she sold out Joe and in that moment, he does that thing where his eyes go dead and he shoots her in the back, like just point, aims his gun at her and kills her without. And I think that's, I mean, he shot the German soldier, but didn't kill him, like then tried to save his life. But this is the first time he's killed a person. And it's somebody he kind of liked who kind of liked him, but because she, and this is just, there's such a pitiful 
pathetic end. And of course, Marchetti, well, not of course, but Marchetti does show up so she can die in his arms and rat out Antoine one last time. Yeah, I mean, so look, this is going to sound heartless to say this is totally the right call by Antoine. Um, And if you are running a resistance organization and you find somebody who's ratting on you and spying on you to the police, uh, that's what your bullets are for. And the fact that we've, um, we've had a certain affection for Elian because she's, or at least a certain concern about her because she's uh, the latest uh, Marchetti prey, uh, you know, she's actually not a good actor. And, uh, and she's gotten people killed, particularly Joe. Um, and she's put a lot of people at risk. And she is willingly a tool of Marchetti. I don't mean, she's also kind of his slave, but, uh, you know, she's reporting on him for, to him needlessly. And in that moment, you have a decision to make. Do you let her get away uh, or do you take the shot? And uh, he takes the shot. And I think that's like... Just. It's just. It's, it's, ju- it's not just just. It's an operational necessity. Yeah. Uh, okay. So so that that's a key piece. That's, that's the end of the first episode. Um, I do want to just also... Okay, another lightning round thing I want to tag, point out, make sure we don't miss. Um, one thing... The Mueller gets Daniel released. And I don't think it is at all clear why. Uh, like, the motivations for this. Uh, and one of the things that he does, and I just want to point it out because it's relevant for later, and uh, I remember being confused by it, uh, is that when it's Mueller got him out by saying, he said you were an informer for the German police, uh, which, of course, Daniel is not. But now that is how he has been gotten out of prison. Yes. And uh, that is clearly a uh, or. Uh, some kind of uh, foreshadowing of problems for Danielle down the line. He's been many things uh, uh, that uh, for which he bears complicity. Uh, that is not one of them. Um, and um, uh, so, yeah, but he's got, um, you do worry about whether when that form falls into the hands of the, of, of the resistance or the Americans who liberate the town, you know, six months from now or whenever it's going to happen, uh, uh, that's going to be ups- an upsetting situation for, for Danielle. But yes. So now going back to your original point though about Janine and Jasanya, where uh, Janine, it, I, I find this like, uh, it is, I guess it's not funny, but it's like such a funny, it's funny to watch a, uh, a, a scrambler like her uh, scramble through a situation where because she lives with the mayor of the, the authoritarian Nazi-fied mayor of the town, but she's also paying off the resistance because she's hedging her bets, right? She's got it. She's playing both sides now, hedging her bets. But she hears from her husband that uh, they have an informant who is ratting out the people who are paying the resistance. They've put a mole in and she uh, goes to one of the people that she sort of knows to be as a bartender, but that she knows to be someone who can handle this and is like, this guy's a mole. And before you know it, her husband gets a call saying, 
our informant has been shot and killed. And so Janine will just like, she gets people shot pretty quick just to make sure she can keep playing her both sides. Yeah, but again, this uh, strongly, uh, if you just think about it from an operational point of view, strongly validates uh, Marie and um, uh, Anselm's and, um, uh, and Schwartz's decision to get her involved um, because now she has an interest in protecting their interests. She will, and she rats out to the resistance that they have a mole and they kill the guy. And, um, and so, you know, all of a sudden her interests have gone from being solidly on the uh, Nazi uh, slash uh, Vichy side to being, uh, shall we say, conflicted. And uh, she has a very strong interest in not being outed herself and is therefore feeding really important information from an operational security point of view to Marie's people. Um, and so, uh, you know, she does it for completely, completely corrupt self-protective reasons. But boy, she just saved the resistance from uh, a, a major, major problem. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Okay, uh, I also just really quick in our lightning round, you do have, Antoine was was the voice of your hatred of the play. At least he does tell Claude, man, your play sucks, which we sort of know that Claude wrote this play, so like it really hits him hard. Yeah. Uh, but I thought that might have been satisfying for you. It was very satisfying, and I also am uh, really glad I'm not going to have to watch that stupid kiss scene one more time um, uh, with either male-female or male-male actor. I don't care. I just don't ever want to see that scene again. Yeah, I think we agree the play is a poor man's El Cid and does just yeah. does kind of suck. But it does set up um, poor poor Antoine, who's been getting to, at least via the play, make out with Marie. Uh, Schwartz shows up, you know, and they have a couple conversations. You just can't keep Schwartz and Marie apart. And before you know it, they're, they're banging in the woods. Antoine sees it. Uh, and it kicks off, uh, you know, his, his, his desperation to go have this parade. But I want to say something else about this scene, which is uh, every now and then the screenwriters give us this little bit of information about Schwartz, you know, that he's fundamentally animated by a spirit of mischief and adventure um, and that Marie brings this out in him in a big way. And so he says to her at one point, I'm only in this for your beautiful eyes, right? Um, but this time he says to her, it's not her that's bringing it out in him, it's Antoine, that he's going to help these guys against her will because what they're doing is funny. It'll be funny. It'll he says, be funny. He says, so you're going to give him the traction? He says, yeah, it'll be funny. It is a great line. It's a great line. It. He's basically an imp. And, <laughs> you know, like he thinks he's a businessman. But at the end of the day, he'll, you know, he'll ditch his business interests for a, a, a smile or 
a romp in the woods or her fine eyes or because the kid, you know, his his dead wife's younger brother, he's kind of into that he's so into this and he needs some trucks to pull off something funny. Um, and I think that's a, like, this super human, uh, you know, we all think that they're, like, people who make fateful decisions, like joining the resistance, you know, do it because of some great principle or because they're coerced or because... And, like, there was a swashbuckling quality to some of this that was like, this will be a good time. Um, <laughs> and I think, like, like Schwartz is a wonderful representation of that. Middle-aged man... Uh, with an, you know, could be definitely some midlife crisis shit going on. He's married to a hateful woman and he can get back at her and have a smile and have sex with younger women. Um, like, it's like the red car, 18-year-old cocktail yeah. waitress thing, only it's, there's some, you know, fuck the Germans and it'll be a smile sort of thing going on. Yeah, he's going to be celebrated as a resistance hero, but he was just in it for the chicks and the kicks. Yep. That was it. Uh, okay, last, very last thing then is when Mueller shows back up at, to Hortense and Daniel's house, there's this like, just like, it's just like, so he tortures her the first time, has to work pretty hard to get her back. He humiliates her the second time, paints on her face, whatever, kind of shows back up at the door. He's like, you know, I know that you were just doing this to help me out. And she's like, well, you're buying the groceries, bub. Yeah, <laughs> like, so, let's so back in. <laughs> this is the weirdest scene in the freaking yeah. thing. Yeah. She won't move back in with him, but she lets him move in with her. What's that about? What is it about? I This part, to me, was, like, the whole... I I, I just... Look, I, I, it's fine. It moves the plot along. It's not out of the realm of possibility for these, like, insane lunatics... But, like, when he shows up and, yeah, she's like, you know, you can move in here. And, like, he's also weirdly, they have that weird scene in the bedroom where he's like, well, I'm going home because we're not having sex. And she's sort of like, sure, we can have sex. Like, the kids are far away, whatever. Right. And, like, it's like, at no point is there a real, I, I don't know. It, it, and it's and then he helps get Daniel get out for whatever reason. Like, sometimes their motivations are just very cloudy for me because they don't, like I said, they're lunatics, so who knows? But this is not how I would behave in this situation, so That's I can't right. relate. If, if you were having an affair <laughs> with an SD guy um, who was had humiliated you repeatedly and you were supplying with morphine, you would behave differently. I agree. I would definitely <laughs> behave differently in the scene. Cannot relate to this. Um, uh, okay, yeah, there, there's okay. no part of that relationship that makes a lot of sense to me. So I don't think we should spend a whole lot of time on it. Um, Action-packed couple of episodes. Uh, and I'm really excited about the, uh, the uh, conclusion of the season, which we're going to discuss next week. That's right. Until then, Idi, take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement. Hommes, thèmes, tous les amants. Et puis un...